0: Hey, happy Thursday. Unsurprisingly, I've got more to say. You know, I'm, I'm just, I'm completely shaking. It's that electricity I, I always talk about where I think you have to reframe what you feel sometimes and get away from the terms that have been reinforced. Not that those terms are useless. Like, it's it's helpful that modern psychology has come up with a word like anxiety, But you have to remember that that's a modern word for something that has always existed. And I think of anxiety as a form of of electricity, and I find that it becomes more manageable when you think of it that way. I think you can do more with it. Not that you have to do more with it, because the thing about when you're experiencing intense anxiety, nervousness, electricity, you have all of this energy to the point where you can't sleep you can't really sit down, but yet you can't really do anything with it. You just have it, and you just shake. You know, And even if you're not physically shaking, like even if you don't have tremors, you feel like everything about you is just shaking. And that's definitely how I feel. But I, I see it as a form of electricity, and it's also like reframing everything and getting away from—you don't want to ever be attached to these placeholder words— Like if you think you're having a nervous breakdown, you know, it might be helpful to think of it that way. Because there are processes that you can follow that can help you with that. But you don't want to become attached to that idea if you don't have to. And I I was thinking this morning and I was like, you know, what I'm going through is not new to me. And I would I think it's more helpful for me personally, and not even more helpful, but more truthful to me personally. Well, it turns out what, what's helpful is truthful, but uh, what's better for me personally, either way, is just thinking of it as a, a reckoning of the spirit, and yeah, it's not the first time that's happened. I've had some significant moments like this, and what's interesting, though, is like when there's obviously something going on with my nerves, you know, obviously my nerves are, uh, they feel exposed and haywire right now. But not, I don't feel any emotional attachment to that. I don't feel actually any emotion at all in relation to what I'm experiencing, which is interesting because when I think of being nervous as a kid, like even something like giving a report, like giving, like I was never somebody who was absolutely terrified of standing in front of people, but I would get very nervous. Like if I was even doing a book report in front of the class, I would get very nervous. And that was a very emotional nervousness. Like, you are worried about maybe what other people are going to think of you. Your uh, your emotions are very much attached to that feeling of nervousness. But if you can get away from that, and I think for me, you know, meditation, well, well I don't think it was the sole reason I've been able to, to detach myself. Emote, I, I don't think it's the sole reason I've been able to detach emotion from, say, the nervous system. It definitely helped me oh god yeah that phone call was it was like two seconds of like a little like ragtime piano jingle and and then it went silent so (laughs) exactly what I need right now you know because like the like I like I've mentioned before I still have this home phone this landline because like certain accounts and different things dealing with my mom are still associated with it so Just on a practical level, I feel like I have to keep it for the foreseeable future just in case somebody tries to get a hold of her or anything. Uh, But pretty much everything that comes in is a robocall. And all the robocalls, like they say they're coming from other cities in Washington state. And it's like usually someone like yelling in, in Vietnamese or just some sort of, you know, they're obviously all, you, you, you know what a call is like. But that one was weird. I've never had one like that. A lot, a lot of times I don't even answer them. But it was like two, it was like three seconds of like a ragtime piano jingle. And then just silence. I mean, obviously like a waiting tone. Like obviously they use piano as sort of a waiting, you know, tone. Like a uh, muzak. But I felt like there was some, like, like everything in your, you know, everything gets filtered through your current state. And so it, it seems somehow perfect that there was, like, a few seconds of, like, a ragtime piano thing and then just cuts to silence. Like, you can see where, depending on what's going on with you, everything kind of gets passed through that filter. But no, I'm not going to sit here and be like, what does it mean? What does the piano jingle mean? The piano jangle. Piano jangle. Piano <laughs> jangle. This is my daughter, Piano Jingle. Piano Jingle. (laughs) No, but anyway, to get what I was talking about, you know, you think about your whole life and the reason why nervousness is so catastrophic, the reason why like when your nervous system is going haywire, like beyond, you know, that can happen for physical reasons, of course. I mean, there can be things that are completely at, at any point in your life are completely unattached to what's going on and it could just be a physical problem. But it's like when you think about being nervous, it's almost always associated with some sort of emotional reaction. Like I don't want to do it, I don't want to go up there and read my book report. You know, it's that sort of feeling, and it's people have meltdowns. I mean, people, you know, people have serious fallout from those experiences. Sometimes, you know, like if you go up in front of the class. And stumble over your words or talk really fast. If you, if you get up in front of the class and you basically reveal to them how nervous you are, you're upset. You're emotionally upset about that. But it's interesting to reach a point where, you know, not that I always am able to do it. Obviously, my nerves are still attached to my emotions. It's not like I've beaten the game. But right now, I, I don't feel an emotional attachment to this feeling of just haywire nerves. Exposed nerves. And that's a good thing. Because it's just it's it's a mostly physical sensation. Where it's just like this is this is what's and and I realized that I think I've talked about this before, but I, I had an epiphany about nerves and anxiety when I was meditating. It was I was pretty early on in meditating. And I was in my old house, which was speaking of exposed, it was very exposed to the elements, so bugs and all kinds of things could get in. And it was shortly after I had learned uh, that I was deathly allergic to bees all of a sudden. And it was late at night, and I was sitting in my living room meditating and getting into a good meditative space. And all of a sudden, I hear a loud buzzing. And, and you know, since I've learned about this allergy I have, I've really started to pay attention to the way flies sound opposed to bees. And when I hear something buzzing, I kind of, I get nervous just Based on that sound alone, but I've started learning to try to differentiate the sound between a fly and a bee. And this was an this was unmistakably bee-like buzzing. And I was just like, "What is like?" Because I mean, the one thing too you learn about like the patterns of bees. Like, I, even though it's like you don't want to get stung. Like, my whole life, the first, like, 25 years of my life, I never really gave it much consideration. I'd been stung on the face. I'd been stung on the hand, the arm, the leg. You know, I never really thought about it. I wanted to avoid being stung, but it's like I never paid attention to, like, what time of day bees are most active or what the difference between a a bee buzz and a fly buzz is. But, uh, you know, one thing I've learned since getting this allergy is that you know, bee. You don't have to worry about bees much at night, but a bee got into my house late at night. Like we're not even talking about like it's not like su- the sun had just set. We're talking about like midnight or something. A midnight bee. It's the name of my bar. Welcome to the midnight bee. Um, but this this midnight bee got in my house. And I, I immediately I was like I have to figure this out. I can't just sit here. While well, this is a good exercise for meditation, you know I've mentioned before. Sometimes when the dog is barking, sometimes when there's a loud noise, it's good to meditate through that. It's good to have obstacles to meditation. But this was early on, and I don't know. I, I wasn't ready for an obstacle that in my mind could potentially kill me. So I got up and I, and it was in the drain of my sink. You know where the water drains. The drain. You know what a drain is. It was in there, and I I got the impression that it came through there. I got the impression because you know that house. It was so exposed. It wouldn't surprise me if there was some exposed pipe or something that it, something could get into outside. But I got the impression it might have come into the house through my sink because it was sitting in the drain, and it was a giant bumblebee. It was giant, and I don't know whether I'm allergic to them or not, I don't know, you know, I I don't I, I really have no idea which bee, I haven't gotten the allergy test, to me, I, don't, I didn't want to risk it, I didn't want to take a chance, it's like uh, the movie Casino at the end, uh, why take a chance, you know, where they're talking about like people potentially cooperating, it's a great scene, it, it plays uh, House of the Rising Sun, and one of, and the mafia bosses are meeting in the back room, and you know they're the one they're talking about the one guy, and they're like, he's a marine, his father was a good man. He's basically saying this guy won't rat. And then the the main mafia boss just shrugs, he says, why take a chance? And then the next scene is just all these guys getting killed. That was very much my attitude. Uh, that was what that that scene played out in my head when this bee got into my house, and so I killed it. Somehow I killed it. I don't, I don't remember how. I won't. I shot it. I shot this bee, casino-style. No, but I killed this bee, and then I sat back down to meditate again. And at this point, the anxiety and the nerves were just going haywire because hearing this buzz in the middle of the night and finding a mysterious midnight bee in my house just ignited me. And so I was sitting there meditating, and it was really weird because I was able to get back into a meditative state but it didn't alleviate the anxiety and nerves. But yet I wasn't feeling any emotional attachment to that. And it, I think this was really the moment when the word electricity came to me. Because it felt like electricity shooting up and down my arms. And I thought to myself, like, even though that wasn't desirable, like that's not a desirable feeling. Like You don't go through life wanting to feel anxious electricity shooting up and down your arms. But I realized in that moment, like, this is cool. Like when I don't feel anything about this, even though it's there, and I don't want to go through life feeling this way, it's cool to just think of this as purely as a feeling, purely as a sensation, purely as a form of energy. And so I was just sitting there feeling this going up and down my arms, because for me, what for whatever reason, I don't know if this is true for everybody, my entire life, I feel my nerves and my anxiety through my arms. I'm sure somebody could break it down scientifically and explain why that is. It doesn't really make a difference to me why that is. It simply is. And so right now I'm kind of having a form of that. I'm kind of having a form of that, not that same epiphany because I already know it now. So it's not like a new thought, but it's defi- I'm definitely aware of the fact that what I'm feeling right now, while it is manifesting physically in a, many different ways, I'm not sitting here going, oh my god, oh, oh, boy, what, what, you telling me I'm gonna have to get in front of the class and do a book reports, I'm gonna have to do a book reports, no, I'm, I'm not feeling that way about it, and you know, that could come, that could come, I'm not saying I, I've beaten the game, I've beaten my emotions back, but I just, it's, that's not a part of it at the moment, but what do you do with that? You know, what do you do? Like, I, its funny because I was going when I was going through this sort of feeling. I think it was in 2018. I think it was like the middle of 2018. Coincidentally, around the time I started meditating. Meta-da- oh, you meditating? I'm going to start a, a dating app called MediDating. It's a new age dating app. But around the time I started meditating, coincidentally. But I think I mean, I think having this feeling going through a similar sort of spiritual reckoning led me to finally be like, I'm going to start meditating. Whatever happens, happens. But I was talking to Miles, and I was just like, yeah, you know. and, And some of it was prompted by circumstance. Like I'd met this girl, and there was all this weird stuff going on with that. But I remember at the time, Miles saying, you know, like when you're going through that, when your body is basically vibrating, like you need to remember sometimes just to stay at home and sit and let your body vibrate. Because I know when I'm going through this, like, my entire focus is moving. Like, I want to go out and walk. I want to go, I want to move around and do things. I want to call people. I want, I mean, I'm doing an episode right now. You know, it's very much like, what can I do with this energy? But it's not like I can use it for something. Like, I would not feel good doing art or something creative right now. I don't feel that I have the focus and physically it wouldn't feel right. Like I feel like my hands would shake. But I you know, I, I, am going to make an effort to sit with this. Because I think interesting things can come of that. I think good things can come of that. And viewing it as a sort of spiritual reckoning, that's preferable to me than what I was saying yesterday where it's like, a, it's a slight nervous breakdown. You know, I think that thinking of it as a spiritual reckoning is preferable to me. You know, to somebody else, you might want to frame it a different way, if you need to frame it a different way. But I know that I benefit more from thinking of things as spiritual reckonings, because at the end of the day, these are placeholder terms. And uh, but But even then, though, using certain terms is going to impact how you feel about the experience, what you do about it. And I think some people, you know might just need to say I'm having a nervous breakdown and that's it. I think they might need to follow that process. And I think there's some people who, you know, might be a little unhinged to begin with. They might have, you know, some other mental issues and telling them they're having a spiritual reckoning or allowing them to go too deep into that idea might not be good. I don't know. I can't speak for anybody else which is my point. I don't know that anybody else would benefit from being like, oh, it's not, a, it's not anxiety, it's electricity. It's not a nervous breakdown, it's a, a spiritual reckoning. And of course, you know, other people when they're feeling this way naturally turn to substances. You know, they, they want to, I mean, I, I've definitely had this experience before when I was drinking and it was always amazing that like you have that first drink and you don't feel this way. But you're limiting yourself when you do that, of course. You know, you're cutting something off when you do that. Because the the feeling you have of being exposed, of your nerves exposed, just, I, let's just say in general, you feel somehow exposed. You know, you don't want to actually cut that off. You don't want to limit that sensitivity. Because the transformation you're going through requires you to remain sensitive to all forces, essentially. And I think the hard part is when your emotions are tied up in it. Like, I've had this experience before over a girl. And then, you know, it, later you always look back on that, and you're like, I can't believe I got, I let myself get twisted up over that. And then, sure enough, it happens again. Uh, it's just how it works. Like, oh, I figured out. that Every time you think you've beaten the game, the game shocks you it surprises you. Every time you think, oh, like when I was 19 or, or when I was 21 and I, I wanted to jump off a cliff because a girl did something or, you know, things didn't work out, uh, I'm sure, I'm so glad I, I'm, I'll never feel that way again. I'm so glad I'll never feel that way again. And then it's like, sure enough, like something even more minor happens and you're just like, oh my God, I, I want to jump off a cliff again. You know, so it's like thinking that you've beaten the game is never, you know, as long as you're a living human being, there's no use in thinking you've beaten the game. And so you got to be ready for anything, even things you think that you've already conquered. And, uh, you know, so me saying like, oh, being unattached emotionally from this experience, you know, I don't want to pretend like I'm, that won't happen. Like there won't be some twist that'll make this some sort of, heavy duty emotional experience, but you can at least acknowledge, oh, that's not a part of things in this moment, that's not a part of things right now, and that's, I I find that helpful, I find giving a simple description, because it again gets to the description versus explanation thing, where you can describe what is going on with you, but the second you start trying to explain it, you start adding all kinds of decoration. And, I mean, obviously I'm decorating what I'm saying. Oh, it's a spiritual reckoning, That blah, 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 you know. Electricity, that's decoration too. But I just mean, like, explanation is when you start saying, like, start acting like you're the master of it. You're the total master of it. Because the reality is you are a subject. You have control. You have a lot, of, a lot of control over what you can do, more than you even realize. But you're also a subject, And uh, that's, that's the wonderful thing about it, is it's not just something you need to control. Like, when you are feeling extremely sensitive, it means you absorb things. You are an antenna. Here, this sounds very decorative. Can't avoid decoration, though. You really can't. You can't be a talking, thinking human being and not add your own little decorations to ideas, but... I just try not to explain, and I I just try to describe if I can. Um, But uh, yeah, you know, because the reason why people are so bothered by sensations like this isn't just the sensation alone, even though the sensation wouldn't be described as fun. It's that there is often some sort of reason for it and I have my reasons for sure, like I have my human practical reasons for feeling this way, in addition to probably larger things, but, uh, so I, I wouldn't deny that myself, but it's like, it could be like something like a girl, where it's like somebody's upset because of a girl, and you have to get away from that, even though you'll go through that, it's like, it's not useful to just, I don't know, it's not useful to allow that stuff to like rip you apart again and again. And some people, they let it get to them time and time again. They go through people, they never really let themselves sit. It's kind of like that idea of what Miles said about just like staying home and letting your body vibrate. While I will inevitably get out, I have things I have to do and I just want to get exercise because exercise is important. You know, that it's it, that goes on in people's relationships as well where some people, they don't want to just sit home and vibrate. That's why some people are, you know, serial monogamous. That's why some people cheat on their spouse. That's why some people are polyamorous because they don't want to have any time where they just sit with themselves. And we do that in many ways. I mean, talking about, like, going out and drinking when you're feeling this way is a version of that. So many things we do... Are just an aversion to sitting with ourselves, and it's not an introvert extrovert thing either you know I don't think that it is um, I, I, I think it's actually something else because I think you know I, I tend to be more introverted, believe it or not, and it doesn't make a difference as far as the way I handle this sort of feeling it doesn't seem to make a difference to me. But yeah, no. so you can see this as sort of a spiritual reckoning. You can see it as sort of a, you know, just pure electricity going to your body. And what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Well, let it go. Or, I mean, let it flow. And I mean, I think it's it's more likely to leave you. It's, it's more likely to be easy come, easy go. If you go with that perspective. Like if you just let it hit you. If you let the lightning bolt hit you, if you let the current just run through you, I think it eventually runs its course. Something eventually happens. Something eventually settles, or nothing happens. But it eventually does kind of go somewhere. You do kind of get unplugged. And so I think the the thing you have to do in these situations is just be there with it, not even confront it, because you don't need to confront it if it's already there. You know, but just... Uh, get into the mode of description. Because the second you start explaining things, and like, oh, this is happening because of this, while that can be helpful to figure out, you know, psychological issues, causes, things like that, if there are causes, I think it, it can also encourage you to become attached to the feeling or attached to a certain way of framing the feeling. And if you can see the feeling in multiple different ways using multiple different phrases... You know, whether it's, I think it's helpful for me to think, oh, I might be having a slight nervous breakdown. Oh, I might be having a spiritual reckoning, or it could be something else. I'm nervous, I'm anxious, I'm this or I'm that. You know, I think when you look at it that way, in these different ways, you start to see, maybe not the whole of it, but you start to see the different dimensions of it better. And you always have to look back and say, like, what did people say about this Before the current time. Because this feeling has always been there. You'll come across this feeling described in books. Texts. Stories. This feeling is a part of everything. Even when different languages are used. Even when different philosophies are applied. Different religion. You know. This feeling is there. And the words change. The ways of understanding it change. But the description stays the same. Relatively close to the same. I mean, everybody has their own take. Everybody has their own experience. We are individuals on some level. But, uh, you know, with the with the placeholders, you know, it's like while they can be helpful, the placeholders can give you a process that alleged experts have figured out. You know, I think, you know, it's like psychologists and, and people like that can help you. Therapists can help you. Spiritual guides can help you. You know, it's not like anybody has to fall into one category. There are processes for helping people through things. And that's the amazing thing about it, is that no matter what time you're in, no matter what language you're using, no matter what words, no matter how a certain feeling is contextualized, people have always made it a point to try to walk other people through this process. They have always made it a point to help other people come out on the other side better. More aware, more, maybe even a little bit more evolved, because I think these feelings usually, like, I mean, because I, like I said, I've experienced this before. This is not new to me. While my circumstances right now are new, this feeling itself is not new to me. And every time I've experienced it, especially in recent years, when I didn't try to block it out, when I just let it come, and I think every time you experience it, you learn a little more about it. But it, you know, every, you know, in recent years, when it's come, and it's not like it happens all the time, but you know, every couple of years, maybe there's something that prompts this sort of uh, feeling, to different degrees. You you realize like, oh, this almost always, this is almost always a significant part of some kind of transformation. For me, maybe a spiritual transformation, it could be a personal transformation, it's all the same. I don't separate those things in myself at all. Uh, But it nonetheless signifies some kind of transformation, and that's great. I mean, that's what we want, right? You know, people are always looking to transform themselves, get tattoos. I I, I know I make a lot of cheap shots about tattoos. I actually think tattoos are cool. I just know that tattoos are an easy cheat code to feeling different or thinking that you feel different they're decorative by nature and that's why we like them and even though I don't have any I legitimately like see people with tattoos sometimes and I'm like they look cool so don't get me wrong but uh you know we do decorate ourselves we get new haircuts we pierce our ears we do we we change our bodies in all kinds of different ways we work out I mean working out is body mod as I've said before eating binge eating is body mod bme magazine the new one is all about binge eating and how binge eating is the new body mod um but uh you know you don't think of it you don't think of like a weightlifting magazine being the same thing as bme i think i'm getting that right bme is that the one that's like about like piercing i think it's body mod i think the bm probably stands for body modification right i don't know i have never read but i've never read bme I'm even getting it right. But, you know, we do all these things to transform ourselves on the surface. Like, we make decisions to make ourselves feel different. Getting a tattoo, an earring, dyeing your hair, shaving your head. I mean, the clothes you buy. All kinds of other ways. You know, the stuff we read, our interests. You know, so much of what we do is an attempt to transform ourselves in some way even if it's just intended to make people think of us different. Oh, I've gotten into this, and I want people to notice so that they think I'm cool. I mean, wanting to be cool is a desire for transformation because it means you don't feel cool, and you want something to make you cool. So it's like all this stuff does come down to some sort of transformation, but we know transformation is a... I don't want to call it a painful process, but it can be an uncomfortable process. Like, you think about transformation in, the you know, a fictional sense, like a werewolf. I mean, not that werewolves are fictional, because they're real, but, but uh, you know, with, with like a werewolf, where it's like, that's like a painful process when a werewolf, when a man transforms into a werewolf. It's like he's, he's in pain as his body does that, as it produces fur and claws and teeth and his eyes change. It's like there's a, a pain to that transformation, and... You know, any discussion you'll see of a spiritual transformation is the same thing, where there's kind of a discomfort at the very least. Let's just say that. Let's say there's a discomfort at the very least when it comes to any kind of transformation that you you may or may not go through. And even, you know, and and not to take anything away from tattoos, because that's pain. Like, you're experiencing pain to do this. You know, even some of these more superficial attempts at transformation involve like a sacrifice of some kind even buying clothes, you have to give money, you know, you have to give money, you have to pay Target money to buy their Morona brand, which I love, I love Target's Morona brand, I, most of my clothes are Target Morona brand, just in case you wanted to know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's like you, you pay money to get that stuff, so it's like there's always some kind of, anytime you want to transform yourself, I think there is some kind of like sacrifice, and I know this is kind of a, an a annoying point, like, You're sacrificing money to buy your target Morona brand outfit. But it's true. I mean, so it's like I don't, I'm not trying to downplay the ways that we just like casually try to transform ourselves, like makeovers. There's always some kind of sacrifice. With tattoos, there's pain. With piercings, there's pain. But, you know, internal pain is something else, and people have a lot harder time with that. Like somebody who's getting a tattoo, like you hear from people who get tattoos, they love the pain. Like people have a bunch of tattoos they're like i love the feeling of getting a tattoo but if you were to ask that person oh do you love the feeling of all of your nerves being exposed and anxious electricity shooting up and down your body and they'll say no no but it's like that's a that's a tattoo too like what is happening to you in that moment is analogous to you laying there getting a tattoo and guess what you have to do when you get a tattoo? Here, I know so much about tattoos for a guy who doesn't get them. Turns out we all do. We all know everything about tattoos these days. But you, if you're getting a tattoo, you just have to sit with it. And guess what? The, the tattoo gun is vibrating. But if you're getting a tattoo, you just have to sit there. And that's how you get a tattoo. And if you want it to look halfway decent, if you don't want to be scarred and maimed, you just have to sit there. And, I mean, I do think there's... It's analogous to a personal or spiritual transformation where you're going to have to sit with it at some point. It's, it's a little bit different, but, you know, you will have to do things. You will have to move around. You will have to do something with that energy. You will have to talk to people maybe. But, you know, there is a component of it, like Miles said, sit there and vibrate. Sit there and vibrate. You think about that. Meditate. You Think about that's the last thing you want to do when you're having some sort of episode of anxiety. But even if it doesn't calm your anxiety, sitting there with it is a fascinating experience. Like I learned with the B, with the Midnight B. Sounds like a hotel, motel. It sounds like, like an inn. The Midnight bee Inn. Midnight B Inn. <laughs> midnight B Inn. That's what I say to people when Midnight strikes. I say Midnight B Inn it be in man um but it's like with that that was similar to what i'm talking about cuz that was a very direct anxiety like that anxiety was produced 100% by this like bee that i thought could potentially kill me coming into my house in the middle of the night but still i sat there with the feeling and i i thought wow this feeling is amazing it's not pleasurable but when I detach myself through meditation with, and just sit with this feeling, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily get rid of the feeling, although it can. But I'm much more aware of what that feeling actually is and what it feels like when my mind quiets down a little bit. And so I plan on doing that. I mean, I meditated last night and I got into a deep meditation. I, I've actually that's the, the interesting thing about this whole experience is that meditation has been very deep lately. And it hasn't been that way for a long time, over a year. It's been over a year. Uh, Basically, since my mom died, I've meditated almost every day. But it tends to be more just kind of going through the motions. And it has its value. And if I don't do it, I feel like I didn't shower. Like I didn't do something. Like I didn't brush my teeth. I've heard other people put it that way too. And it resonated with me because you do kind of feel that way. If you don't meditate, especially early in the day... There is this feeling where it's almost like I didn't do something that I'm supposed to do, and I feel kind of like grimy. I feel a little bit grimy, and I think it's good to do that. I think it's good to not have to meditate all the time. It's like Alan Watts saying, you know, you meditate so that you don't have to meditate, but some days not meditating is good contrast. It's a good reminder because then when you meditate again, you realize the value of it. And if you experience a given day where you don't have that grimy feeling of, I didn't meditate, well, that seems like the greatest success of, of all. You know, that seems like the best success of all. that You're not dependent on a daily meditation and you can experience a purity without meditating in the morning. And, you know, and and you don't have that feeling of not having done something you're supposed to do. I mean, that seems like it's the best of both worlds when you experience it. But you have to meditate, I think, sometimes in order to get to that point. So it's like the Alan Watts meditating so that you don't have to meditate idea. Um, But uh, with uh, going back to just the feeling itself, though, it's like, you know, you want to... um, I I don't know, just lately I, I have been able to get into a deeper state than I have in the past year. And that's interesting. I mean, speaking of contrast, that itself is a very significant form of contrast to go from your waking life where there's raw energy, anxiety, electricity. And then you sit there and you don't lose consciousness. But you set, you, you become separate from... I don't know. I mean, it's hard to explain like that sort of transcendental feeling. Somebody asked me, actually, someone who listens to this show asked me a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, for tips on meditating. And first of all, like, I'm, I'm only three years in, not even three years in, I think. It was like 2018, the middle of 2018, spring 2018 that I started meditating. And uh, so it's like, I'm not an expert in meditation. Although I think sometimes it's helpful to hear from people who aren't experts, You know, so it's not like I I would say that I have nothing to add, but it's like some people get into spirituality or they get in touch with their own spirit and all they want is to be somebody's master. Oh, now I get to tell people and I, I run the risk of doing that on this show every time I talk about it. But some people, they get into that mindset where like what they really want is some sort of like status associated with understanding the spirit they want to feel like a shaman. They want to feel like some sort of guru or master. And it's that's very attractive. Because it communicates confidence to people. It communicates that you know what you're doing. But when this friend of mine asked me about meditation, which like none of my, you know, you know, very few of my friends have asked me for, nobody really has asked me for advice on it. People have been curious. Like I've talked to, it, but it's one of those things where it's like, it's boring to talk about. Unless unless somebody is into it, it's one of those things It's kind of boring to talk about. Like somebody doesn't want to hear about running if they're not into running already or if they're not trying to run. Somebody, somebody doesn't want to hear about cooking. Like I have friends who will talk to me about cooking and it's like I love that they're into that. But the reality is I don't care. Like I'm not into cooking. I'm not really, I'm not a, a foodie as they say and i don't want to discourage my friends from talking about what they're interested in but when a friend talks to me about cooking like knowing that i'm not into that it is boring for me but i also just let them do it if they need to do it but you know it's kind of the same thing with something like meditation where it's like unless somebody is into that or they are they've communicated that it's something they're interested in you don't want to bore them with it and uh but someone asking me like you know a month ago about it I was very careful, like I gave him some information, but I was very careful to to let him know, like, I don't have all the answers on this, I kind of found it in my own way, here's what's been helpful for me, because there are some just common approaches where it's like, you know, breath, you know, I close my eyes, you'll hear other people, you'll hear these meditation experts, and there's, of course, all these different kinds of meditation, but you'll hear these experts say, oh, I keep my eyes open, and I focus on an object, you know, there's object meditation, I close my eyes because that to me facilitates the experience that connects me closer to what I want to be connected to or disconnected from by closing my eyes. So uh, that's my approach, you know, and there's certain mantras. I don't feel like you can necessarily like plant a mantra in someone's head. There's things that I heard, some things I came across, some things I came up with myself that I say, and a lot of them sound silly unless they mean something to you. And some of them don't. Like some of them are things that I've read in, in books about Buddhism, you know, things that are typical. I mean, you think about OM, and that's a universal part of many mantras, not just the sole syllable, all that that too. You'll, you'll hear people just say OM over and over again, but it's also part of longer phrases. And, you know, it feels like almost a cliche to say that. You know, it feels like almost a cliche to like imagine sitting there and repeating OM in your head or even incorporating OM into a longer phrase. But the reality is it does something when you do it. But if if somebody hasn't found that on their own or hasn't opened themselves up to that on their own, telling them like, oh, say like ohm ah, hum, you know, whatever it is, it, it might not resonate with them and it might sound stupid. It might feel stupid and that's fine. But I found in meditation that it's, it again goes back to like what I've said before about trying to invent your own words for things that are already established. And at some point, you just have to accept that certain words are the words. And who are you in your own little ego to try to like reinvent that idea? And God and love are those two for me. Because even though like I've never had a problem saying love, like I've never had a problem saying to my family or girlfriends, I love you, or even friends sometimes... Like, I never thought of that word as something that, you know, I was into. And when people talk about it, it makes me go the other direction. But during meditation, I found that the word love did something. Like, it it made me unfocus. You know, this is just describing, like, the the sensation in in meditation that's hard to describe, which I've described as kind of you're unfocusing but also focusing on something larger. It's like you feel your eyes, even though your eyes are closed, you feel like behind your eyes sort of relaxes, and there's this sort of expansive feeling. And it's un—it's a feeling of unfocusing from your vision. Like even though your eyes are closed, your your vision is unfocusing. But then in doing that, it's almost like you focus on something, like your whole head feels like it's now focusing on something. Whereas normally your eyes feel like they're, they're focusing on something, it expands, it, uh, your eyes unfocus, and now your whole head is focusing on something. And then depending on how deep, depending on how transcendental it gets, that can actually become your entire being just unfocusing to the point where you are now a part of everything. And I'm not kidding you. You know, I know like... You explain this to people who are atheists or very secular minded or, you know, into science and they'll be like, well, the neurons in your brain are doing this and well, what's really happening. They explain to you. And they they're skeptical, which is why you have to be careful about who you talk to about it. But I mean, this is something people have done all over the world for eons. And other people have experienced the same thing. And when you're in that state, like I heard a guy, I was listening to a, a podcast talking about meditation once. And I heard this guy say, when he's in that state, he feels like somebody could point a gun to the back of his head, and he wouldn't even care. And it's not like a nihilistic, oh, I, don't, I don't value my own life. It's just that you are so detached from your own physical experience, your own like your own life, in some ways, that it's like, and, and you're in such a you're in such a state beyond everything you normally experience. All of the things you're, you know, I don't know. I don't need to really explain it. Just th- that resonated with me because I I certainly have felt that way. Which is why I say that sometimes it's good to have. Well, you don't want it all the time. Like the dog's barking. I'm trying to meditate, and the dog is barking. And when I started meditating, I stole my old cat Rosie. And she was deaf. And of course, like when I started meditating, she would want my attention and get up in my face and meow. And she was deaf, so her voice was very loud. And I would get mad. Which is, you, you know in the moment how stupid you look, how stupid you're being. Because you're like, here I am trying to enter this like tranquil, transcendental state through meditation. And I'm getting even more mad than I would be if I were just living my life. Like if I were just doing things around the house... I would be less mad at Rosie than I am right now while I'm trying to do the thing that is beyond emotion and beyond reaction. So it's like you realize how stupid you are in those moments because you're just like, "I'm here I am way more mad at my wonderful little cat because I'm trying to do this thing that makes me less, you know, reactive. And here I am reacting way more severely. But that's a good thing, too, to go through that. And with... Um, You know, the dog barking or the leaf blower outside. Those are distracting, and they can really distract you. But sometimes you can be hearing them, and you know they're there, but it makes no difference to you. Nothing in the world can really agitate you. That guy saying that, you know, somebody could point a gun to the back of his head in that moment, and he wouldn't care. I relate to that. I've had that feeling. And, uh, you know, so it's like you, you... Unfocus your vision, and then it's almost like your entire head focuses on something. And if you keep going from there, it's almost like your entire head then unfocuses. Then your entire being is now focused on something, and from there, it's like you just you could reach a point where you don't feel your body. And I've had that because I kind of cup my hands while I meditate, and there are times where I'm just conscious enough to think about my body. And I'll realize that I can't feel my hands cupped in the other hand. And it actually, it's weird because this is a common feeling when I'm in that state where it actually feels like my hands are resting on my knees. And I'll think to myself, if I'm able to think, I'll think, did I move my hands and put them on my knees? Because it does not feel like my hands are my hands. Like it does not feel like my hands are cupped together. I'm awake. I'm conscious. Conscious enough Yet, I don't feel my hands. My hands don't feel like they're doing that thing that I know they're actually doing. And that's just a weird feeling. And that's kind of what I mean when I say, like, you end up transcending your your being. And it's like you unfocus, but in unfocusing, you're focusing on something larger. And then you reach a point where there really is no focusing and unfocusing. But anyway, you know, just to get back somebody asked me for advice and I was like, this is, I have to be very careful about this because I don't want to act like an expert. I want to give very practical advice. I don't want to plant any seeds in somebody's head because what led me to meditation was not another person directly telling me what to do. And I tried to get a couple people to help me. Like I had a friend who, she no longer meditates, but she had meditated for years and was part of a, a Buddhist Sangha. And I was like, are you going to help me meditate today? You know, I kind of got into that mode. And she was like, oh, there's an app you can download. And I'm actually glad that she never tried to walk me through it. Because it forced me to kind of figure it out on my own. And it was a difficult process because I sat there, you know, there was about a week where I was like, I'm going to meditate. Whenever I, whenever I feel like it, I'm going to try to meditate. I mean, it's an experiment. And I had no idea what to expect. I mean, you think of like, artistic renditions of somebody's head you know a third eye and like somebody's head expanding and be, you know whatever it is you, you see these artistic renditions you know of people meditating and I didn't know what to expect though in, in terms of what it would actually do I thought maybe, if nothing else it's something people do to calm themselves you know if nothing else maybe it'll have some sort of physical effect but uh, you know the first week in particular was very difficult But I did start to experience some weird things. Like I was out in nature. I went to this park and I was sitting on a bench and I could hear people. It was a a wildlife place, so there weren't a lot of people around. But I was sitting there on this bench and I just closed my eyes. And at that point, I didn't really have mantras. I was just kind of focusing on my breath, trying to to, uh, detach myself. And the people I was hearing, I could hear kids, I could hear people. And it, it... it became really weird. I was no longer hearing them as people. Like I was no, I was hearing just the sounds they were making and it almost felt like an effect had been put on them. Like almost like a delay effect. Not really, not like it, not like there was actually any repeating, not like there was any echo, but it almost felt like something had transformed their voices. And that was, I think the first time, and maybe some of it was like me looking for things. Cause the thing is when you're doing that, you can kind of your imagination can kind of go maybe I'm hearing something different. Maybe something else is happening, you know, and it might be your imagination, but you know, with meditation you'll quickly realize that your imagination does do things. And that doesn't make it any less real. But I was hearing some strange kind of almost effects or or you know, maybe it was just my interpretation of what I was hearing was altered. And that made me go, okay, something's happening, but I, I, it's not entirely what I'm looking for. And then I just kept it up. You know, I, I got into, I meditated, you know, pretty regularly. I wanted just to force myself to get comfortable doing it. And I don't feel that I really entered a state. And there was one time where, like, I was sitting there late at night. And I thought about every single person I knew. And I didn't mean to. Like, I was sitting there, and my mind just started racing. And it just, like almost like flipping through index cards. It was almost like I thought of, obviously not every single person I've ever met, but all of these people, people close to me, people not close to me, I didn't analyze them. I just kind of like went through and just had like brief thoughts about each one. And it wasn't what I wanted though. I didn't want meditation to be that. But it was like, okay, well, you know, my mind is racing. And what you learn through meditation is that your mind will race, especially early on, But you're not actually, and it will feel like your mind is racing, but you're actually probably experiencing your normal rate of thought. But because you are meditating or trying to meditate, you're way more, there's that word, sensitive to what's going on. What's going on is way more apparent to you. And your mind does race all the time, which leads people to meditation. The fact that you're always analyzing, you're always thinking, you're always jumping from one thought to the next. But in your waking life, you're so consumed by your waking life that you don't think about that fact, that your mind is racing. So when you sit there with it, with your eyes closed in a sitting position, something that's very difficult to do. Like I don't sit cross-legged on the ground. I sit in chairs or even couches. I make sure that my back is straight, that I'm supported, but I have back issues. You know, I, I haven't gotten comfortable on the ground. Someone could say that's not, it's not pure meditation because you're not sitting on a pillow on the ground. Okay, I can, I can live with that. Um, but, uh, you know, because you're sitting there with no sensory input, no stimuli, you're now forced to see your brain operate the way it normally does, and that can be shocking. That can feel like you're experiencing a lot more than you do normally and so it's important to remember that that it's not that meditation is making your mind race it's that your mind is racing to begin with and the act of meditation is making you so much more aware of that it is raw something to consider if you try meditating but i don't want to make this me like walking anybody through meditation because i don't feel qualified I was honored this guy asked me. I was honored uh, he asked me, and I won't, I won't name him because that's kind of a personal thing, asking for advice about something. Um, uh, but I was honored, but I was also humbled because I realized, like, first of all, I'm not in a position to teach somebody to do this, and I recognize that everybody's path has to lead them to that. But if you find yourself thinking, like, in the back of your mind, I should really try meditating. I would say go for it because I had that feeling for a long time. I was on this spiritual path, you know, I knew I was on a spiritual path, which like, you know, I say that, but it's like, I think we all are, you know, I I truly do believe everybody is on one, whether they acknowledge it or not, whether they use like somebody experiencing a nervous breakdown who uses those explicit terms, to me is going through a spiritual crisis, whether or not they want to call it that. So it's like I see spirituality as something that impacts everybody's lives. But it's not my job to convince them of that. Because spirituality, it turns out, is another placeholder. But anyway, so, you know, it's it's um, what led me there. Nobody could have told me to do that. Nobody could have told me. It's time. It's time for, t- for you to meditate. But I was just on this spiritual path. And I dabbled in so many different things and hadn't really found, like, the perfect complement to what I was learning both in terms of like my own experiential knowledge, as well as just what I was paying attention to what I was reading, you know, I hadn't really found the right compliment. Because I do think you need some sort of ritual, but it doesn't have to be lighting candles. It doesn't have to be, you know, dressing up in beads and robes. And it doesn't mean having a seance necessarily. Not to take anything away from those things if they are part of what you do, but... For me, I knew there had to be something else. And I think what meditation actually is, it's turning yourself into the ritual. You become the ritual object. And you don't need anything else to do that. You don't need beads, you don't need candles, you don't need books. You might need a little bit of guidance, you might need a little bit of help to get into that state, to learn the value of it, to learn that you can do it. Because I think that's the thing, is you go into it, and I was skeptical. I was like, I don't know if this will actually produce anything. I don't know if this will actually do anything for me. I don't know if I'll actually reach a transcendental state. And then when you do, you're like, I can't believe that happened. I can't believe that in my sober, waking body, I experienced that. You know, that's the sort of feeling you end up having if you stick with it and you have those breakthroughs. Because breakthroughs are important. You know, like Buddhist teachings, different teachings will tell you don't get attached to the sensations, don't get attached to the epiphanies, don't get attached to visions. And that's important. I think that's true. But those things help you stay committed. Like if I didn't experience breakthroughs fairly early on, I don't know that I would have stuck with it. Like having phrases come to me that didn't feel like they came from me seeing like brief visions of things that I didn't imagine They came to me in the same form that your dreams come to you, but they were brief visions in waking life while meditating. Those things told me something is happening. And while like some phrases came to me that I wrote down, and I would early on in meditation, I wrote things down more. But, uh, you know, while I completely understand the idea of not being attached to those, because, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think that is what it's about. I don't think the idea is just to, like, be entertained, to go to the movies, as they put it. Spiritual attachment, spiritual materialism, all those phrases are used to describe people who try to retrieve something from spirituality that they can use which I think is inevitable. I think you will inevitably do that, but I think you have to not try to do that. I think you have to not do that on purpose where it's like you're 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 going into the spirit world to bring something back. Something material back that you can use. You know, I think you have to be careful not to make that your point. If it happens, it happens. I think it's okay for that to happen, but I see those things I see them very similarly to the way I see synchronicity where You don't want to hold on to every synchronicity and be like, here's what happened to me, and let me tell you about it. Even though it's fun to talk about synchronicity, especially with the right people, you don't want your life to revolve around it. You don't want it to be the entire focus. And that can be difficult because it can be so fun. It can be so weird. But the way I see synchronicity is it's a sign, but you shouldn't be attached to the sign itself. The synchronicity is telling you something is happening you are on some sort of path. You should keep going. You should be aware, but you should keep going. Because the synchronicity itself makes you aware. It makes you consciously aware that something strange is happening. And I had I had some recently, you know, after a long period of not really having any. Sort of goes hand in hand with like reaching that deeper state of meditation recently. Where I did actually have a couple phrases come to me. I actually did have a couple glimpses of things for the first time in a very long time and i wrote down the phrases but you know i sometimes you, you sometimes you want to sometimes it's fun i mean that's what i always say to people cuz you'll you'll come across people who are into these things who are very austere we are like don't you ever don't you ever hold on to anything that comes to you in meditation don't ever celebrate synchronicity don't ever become infatuated with uh, Don't ever become self-cherishing when it comes to these things. But, you know, I think you can have fun with it, too. I think if you know you're having fun with it. And, again, I'm not a master. What am I? Who am I? Um, But, no, I think that you can see these things as signs, but not signs that you need to get attached to. Because, I mean, it's like if you see a sign that tells you, say you're trying to find some small town and you've been lost, and you see a sign that says, like, uh, Nowheresville, 10 miles this way. You go, oh, great, it's a sign. It tells me I'm on, on the right path. But you don't stop at that sign and go, like, oh, look at the sign. Like, the sign is the goal. Oh, let me take a photo of the sign. Sometimes you want to. Sometimes it's fun to take a photo of a sign. But, uh, you know, when you're, when you're driving somewhere, it's like you don't, you see the sign and it's significant to you because it tells you you're going where you want to go or where you should go. But you don't sit there and be like, well, I'm going to keep this sign. I'm going to hold on to this sign right here that tells me Nowheresville is 10 miles north from here. You know, I I think it's similar to that, where it's like you pay attention to it, you acknowledge it, but it's like you don't. It's like imagine getting to Nowheresville, which is kind of the location. That's where meditation exists is Nowheresville. No, but imagine getting to Nowheresville. And then telling everybody, like, oh, you wouldn't believe this sign I saw on the way that told me how to get here. (laughs) You know, you wouldn't believe this sign that I saw that told me how to get here. Because they'd just be like, well, you're here now, right? You're like, yeah, but this sign, the sign that gave me directions, you know, it's like, it's kind of like that. But maybe it's a cool sign. Sometimes I think, like, you'll... Like if you, if you find a sign that says, welcome to nowheresville, and it's like ornate and artistic and decorated, it's carved out of wood, you might be like, this is awesome. That's an awesome sign. And so I, I see synchronicity, I see epiphanies in that light, where it's like, sometimes you just have to say, this is fun. But you also don't want to make it about the signs. And I understand the austerity, I understand why people... Caution people away from that for mental health reasons too, not just spiritual reasons, but there's mental health reasons where I think everybody's come across somebody in their life who is experiencing synchronicity, they're experiencing epiphanies, and it descends into some delusion of grandeur. It descends into some sort of madness, it descends into self importance, it it becomes a cult leader. It becomes somebody talking to themselves on the street, you know, so it's like, that's the sort of stuff. There's a reason why people caution. I mean, that's something you have to remember, because like my initial reaction, like when I started to read and hear about people talking about not being attached to your synchronicity or your or the signs, the signposts that you see, I had some resistance to that. I was like, who are you to tell me that my that I shouldn't think about synchronicity, that I shouldn't enjoy synchronicity? Who are you to tell me I shouldn't catalog it? And I I realized though later where it's like, that's really good advice. Because they can't stop you from enjoying it a little bit. They can't stop you from enjoying breakthroughs. And it doesn't change the fact that having those breakthroughs early on in a process is important. It's like if you've ever tried playing guitar, I always use this example, because it's like if you've ever tried playing guitar, like think about the first time you strum a power chord and it sounds good. Like I got my first guitar and nobody taught me how to play. And I kind of had it in my mind that I was going to like learn myself and be some like new innovative guitarist or something like some experimental guitarist who did things his own way. But I still remember the first time I learned just the standard like power chord. And I was just like, holy oh, like in tune, because I wouldn't even tune my guitar. Like I didn't even know how to tune my guitar and I would just like screw around and I'm still not a proficient musician at all. But the first time that I ever just hit that power chord, I was like, Oh, yeah, this is this is, I'm going to learn at least a little bit more conventional guitar, because this is amazing to hear this. And I think it's kind of the same thing with breakthroughs in meditation or spiritual practice, where sometimes you hit that power chord. And you go, Oh, okay. Sometimes you have a little breakthrough and you say, Okay, this is something and that makes you want to keep doing it. Like I, I think that if I never hit that power chord, if I never hit that standard power chord, I don't think I would have even kept playing guitar. Because you reach a point where you're just worming around, you're noodling around, and even though there can be value to that, and you can actually be very creative in that way, sometimes you just need a something. You need some a breakthrough. I mean, that's why I always use that phrase because it feels like a breakthrough that makes you go, "Okay, this is something." And it doesn't mean you should rest on that. It's like, oh, I'm only going to play that power chord by itself for the rest of my life. No, you're not going to do that. You know, you're not just going to play one power chord the rest of your life. But it does make you realize that you're on track. And so that's all it is. And it also makes you want to keep doing something. Because it gets into the idea, too, where it's like, even though I try not to think of spirituality and meditation this way, if you keep doing something and you never get good at it, you don't really want to keep doing it. Unless you genuinely enjoy the process. I mean, like, there's people who suck at drawing, who nonetheless keep drawing because they just enjoy, like, drawing stick figures or something. Chances are those people will eventually get better, if not good. But still, there are people who do things poorly just for the sake of it. But I think for most people, if you never improve at something, if you never tap in to something, you don't want to keep doing it. And it's you know even though meditation is this transcendental thing, it's the same for that as well. Where it's like if you are just sitting there and your mind is racing, you're bored, you're sitting, you're spending a half hour and nothing ever happens, nothing ever changes. You never experience you never experience anything else. Are you going to want to keep doing it? So I think those things, those signs, are often a, a, a sign that hey, you know. It's just, it's reinforcement. It reinforces that you're doing something you want to do. And then when you go through a year, like I did, with very few moments of true transcendence, you don't stop doing it because you know why you're doing it. You know there's something to it. And even though you don't necessarily reach that state that you want to get into, you also don't make it about that. It's not about that. And that's why I say, like, sometimes it can be more devotional. Because... Trying to get into that transcendental state every time you meditate, well, that's a form of that attachment. That might as well be going to the movies. That might as well be a drug. Like, if you want to reach that transcendental state where you no longer feel your hands where you feel unfocused, but yet focused on something beyond you. Like if if you have to get in that state every time in order for it to be a meaningful meditation to you, well, you're getting attached to something. You're getting attached to some sort of sensation, which is spiritual materialism, spiritual attachment. So, and even though you need that, I feel like to want to keep meditating, it's like you never want to be at a point where you expect that or demand that out of the experience. So going a year without much of that at all, was fine for me because I was like, I don't expect anything beyond this. And then when you get into that state of mind again, you go, uh, it's still possible. It's still possible to feel that, to experience that. So that's cool. It's and you know, and that's at the end of the day, if that's all you think, like at the end of the day, if all it is to you is cool, that's pretty cool. And these things are are worth thinking about when you're going through some sort of reckoning. Because at the end of the day, I think that's what I'm experiencing. I'm experiencing some kind of reckoning, a spiritual reckoning, a psychological reckoning, a bodily reckoning, a transformation, discomfort. And, you know, while there is a certain amount of worry, there is a certain amount of maybe even terror at moments. It's not bad. And if you can be going through something like this, if you can be going through something where your nerves are raw, you feel exposed, and you can say that it's not bad, it doesn't have to be good, but sometimes things simply not being bad, sometimes things simply not being miserable, are a real success. And if you feel success, even in difficult moments, it makes everything more manageable. And I'm in the middle of something. So I'm not trying to sound like I know what I'm talking about, or I even know what I'm going through. You know, I, I, I don't plan on doing these every day. And, you know, I said yesterday that I don't plan on talking about this indefinitely. But I also don't feel that I really have a choice right now. Because I do have things I want to say about it. I do have things that... And you know, I think talking through this in this way is part of the process. And while it's important to be silent, it's important to keep to myself, too, because that's an important part of this. I think describing it, relating it to previous experiences, relating it to other people's experiences. Because what I'll say, too, is the, the phrase dark night of the soul is popular. And I've experienced the dark night of the soul. In 2017, positively, probably the darkest night of the soul that I've experienced to date, and I don't want to pretend that something dark, as dark or darker won't come. You never want to think that. You never want to think that you've experienced the worst of it and be shocked when you experience something worse. But in terms of a spiritual crisis, 2017 was the peak of it to date. And, you know, with that, you know, there, there's the phrase dark night of the soul, and the dark night of the soul almost always whenever anybody discusses it, they almost always discuss it in the context of a great spiritual transformation in their own life, that did end up being for the better. It was an ascendant transformation because if you're in the dark night of the soul, really, I mean, your option is to go deeper into the abyss or to ascend. And ascending could be neutrality. It could be something that's kind of just in between. And you have to remember that that is success, too. Just getting out of that feeling of the dark night of the soul is itself a success, even if you barely crawl out, even if you're just barely above it not like you have to go from zero to 100 you know or, or negative 100 to positive 100 it's not like you have to it doesn't have to be that dramatic just even an incremental improvement but you'll hear people talk a lot about the dark night of the soul to the point where it's even a cliche in occultism and spirituality in new age discussion and there's a reason for that though because that accurately describes the feeling that you have And 2017 was very much that for me I feel like I've had little glimpses of it. I might be having a little glimpse now, but I don't feel that I'm having the dark night of the soul right now. And I don't want to say that with any hubris, arrogance, or overconfidence. But it doesn't feel dark. I think that's what I'll say about my own mindset right now, is it does not feel dark. But I'm very aware of darkness. I'm very aware of, of the potential for that. And so I don't want to trick myself. I don't want to lie to myself. But I think in acknowledging that, hey, you know, right now, it doesn't really feel like the dark night of the soul again. It just feels like certain sensations are heightened, raw, and uh, I have to respond to that accordingly or not respond. You know, like Miles said, like sitting and letting your body vibrate. Because that seems so foreign to us. It seems so foreign when your entire body is shooting with electricity. When your arms are shooting with electricity. It seems so foreign to just sit there and let it happen. Because you're so distracted by it. But you know it's perfectly fine and good to do that. It's perfectly safe. You know it's like uh, I don't listen to Ram Dass a lot. I'm not a Ram Dass guy but I like him. Like I always enjoy listening to him when I do, which just it's very rare. And obviously Ram Dass was a pivotal figure, um, connected to some of the things that I'm into, you know? So it's like, I would never, I mean, I'm, I think he's great. He's just, he just, I guess Ram Dass, he's not one of the people who speaks to me personally necessarily, like in the same way Alan Watts does. I think you, I think people connect to you in different ways, but Ram Dass has a lot of great insight and I was listening to him. And one of my favorite things he ever said was, You know, the idea, because somebody asked him about channeling deceased spirits. And he was talking about, I don't know where, I don't know if he was referring to somebody else saying this, but he told a story about somebody, it was a joke, but he told a story about somebody channeling a a dead guy. And uh, they asked him about death. And he said, oh, you want to know about death? Well, I'll tell you this, it's perfectly safe. And I just think that's so funny. But you have to remember that about life, too. It's like even though there are dangers, even though there are vulnerabilities, even though there's tension, nerves, anxiety, electricity, it's all still perfectly safe. Like, you don't want to sit there and let yourself vibrate. You don't want to sit there and feel electricity shooting up all around your arms, through your body, through your mind. But it's perfectly safe. Like, as long as you don't freak out, as long as you don't overextend yourself, as long as you don't make an impulsive bad decision... It doesn't mean you don't have to do practical things to protect yourself. But as long as you don't impulsively make some kind of horrible decision in an attempt to, like, stop this process, it's perfectly safe to feel this way. (laughs) It's perfectly safe, you know, to just endure a spiritual reckoning, to even embrace it. It's perfectly safe. I mean, this is getting into... Territory people probably wouldn't like But I think it's perfectly safe To have a nervous breakdown And people come out on the other side It's perfectly safe to have a dark night of the soul You just have to be very careful You have to be very careful About what you say and do Under those conditions And uh, so I like that idea of death You know, death is perfectly safe I had that feeling when my mom died I was like, wow, this is crazy Crazy and intense, and sad, and like nothing I've ever experienced. But I had this realization, like that that Ramdas thing actually came to me then, where I was like, something about this seems perfectly safe. Like seeing her, you know, in one moment, and then knowing she's gone in the next moment, something seemed perfectly seamless, and perfectly safe about that. The act of dying itself didn't bother me one bit. Everything else was scary, everything else was something. The physical side of it was something else. But the actual moment-to-moment transition between her being alive and her dying, it seemed safe, it seemed seamless, it seemed perfect. Because it's it is perfect. We die. Dying is necessary. And so seeing somebody die was perfect in that moment. And I think that that's death, the thing that we are the most scared of. Like, we are the most scared of death than anything. I mean, maybe being maimed is, you know, many of us, I think, are more worried about being maimed. But, um, you know, death is the thing that most people live in fear of. Over the last year, what have they been afraid of? Coronavirus. They've been afraid of, you know, all kinds of boogeymen. All kinds of boogeymen have crept into people's minds. You know, I always talk about the phantoms. I always talk about the little voices who, when you say something, you hear this little voice who says, that's not how it is. Oh, you're a hypocrite. Yeah, well, I think this about you. You the little phantoms that everybody has. It's not some schizophrenic delusion. Everybody has these little voices. They're, They're subconscious, however you want to frame it. What you think other people are thinking. Even if, even if it's in your own head, you know, we think that way. It's the shower arguments people talk about. It's that kind of thing. And so I think in the last year, people have had a lot of opportunity for their phantoms to grow loud. And they see boogeymen, but a lot of it does revolve around fear of death. Like, coronavirus has made people constantly afraid of death. And I think it's important to remember what people were saying a year ago. I mean, it hasn't even been a total year yet since lockdown. But I was seeing things like people saying, when you run errands, don't go to more than one store at once because you're going to track it to the different stores. Don't wear surgical gloves because it'll live on the gloves. You know, there were a lot of things going on that were really hysterical for a while there. And now I don't think anybody pays that any mind. Like, I don't think there's anybody who goes... Okay, I'm going to go to the grocery store, go back home, wash my hands, go to another store, come back, wash my hands, go to another store. You know, I don't think there's anybody who's doing that. Yet I saw people saying that adamantly last April, maybe May, you know, where people were saying if you're going to go run errands, don't go to more than don't run multiple errands at once because you're going to kill people. In the last year, the entire narrative has been if you do the wrong thing, you're going to kill people. You're going to kill the people you love. You're going to kill yourself. And I'm I'm not an anti, you know, I I the truth is like I I don't I don't view coronavirus as a hoax. I may have had it. I may have been impacted by it as I've talked about. I don't view it as a hoax. You know, I'm I'm willing to take it at face value more or less and just say this is something that I have to react to. I wear my mask where I have to wear my mask. I don't wear it where I don't have to wear my mask. If I'm walking on the street, I don't wear my mask. I avoid people. I don't wear my mask on the street. I'll wear it into places. I'll wear it around people who are uncomfortable with people not wearing masks. But, you know, with that though, like the entire narrative has been you're going to die. Somebody you love is going to die. You're going to kill people. You're going to kill strangers. You know, it's just this massive fear of death, which makes complete sense because this thing is, you know, said to be deadly. I'm not even trying to challenge the motivation for that, but I'm still, the point I'm making is that it's been hammered into our brains in the last year to fear death. And especially early on during lockdown, it was like everybody was death obsessed. It was the most morbid time I've ever experienced on a, a societal level. Complete and total morbidity. And uh, not in a way that was, it wasn't handled in a way that was philosophically productive. It came from a place of just screaming, people screaming inside their bodies about everything. And that takes its toll. That takes its toll on people. Even though people might not be as scared of it now, to go through months of that, of just total fear of death, seeing yourself as a diseased killer if you go to the wrong place at the wrong time, if you run multiple errands in a row, if you don't wash your hands every single second. I understand why they encourage people to do that, and I'm not questioning that. I'm just saying that, like, you know, philosophically, it's not sustainable. And there was real no conversation about what to do in case, what if death happens? What to do if death does happen during coronavirus? I didn't see anything about that. It was all fear of death. Every single second, every single ounce of energy was, was spent on fear of death. None of it was spent on what to do if death unavoidably happens. And I don't know how to coach people on that. It's not my job. It's not my job to tell people about that. I actually tried. In my own way, in my own personal relationships, I kind of tried to share the experience of my mom's pa- uh, passing, which wasn't coronavirus, but was nonetheless a, a, a sudden infection. And I tried to share that experience with people a little bit, just for my own reasons, but also hopefully to like maybe help them know how to approach death when it happens because it was all aversion to death and even though I don't think we should have embraced death like oh let's go out and get coronavirus even though I don't think that should have been a part of anything we shouldn't have been bug chasers it's like there was no conversation no national conversation about how to accept and live with the act of death itself and that's personal it varies and I understand why people don't want to touch it. But if, if we're going to put people into a state where they are fearing death at every single second, and they are watching death numbers on you know, the New York Times website, and all they are doing is yelling at people for not doing the right thing to protect people from death, I think at some point you have to start talking about what to do, how to accept death when it comes. And so you know that's a part of it as well. It just gets back to the Ramdas thing, though, of, like death itself is completely safe. Does that mean you should celebrate death? I don't know. Does it mean you should encourage death? No, I don't believe in that ever. But uh, remember that it, that the actual act of dying, the moment when you when your body turns off, that is safe. And if that is safe, the thing that we fear the most, it seems like everything that leads up to that is safe too in its own way. And so that's what I have to remind myself right now, that what I'm going through is actually safe. As long as I'm cautious, as long as I do what I have to do, as as long as I keep my head on straight, what's going on with me right now is safe. And, uh, you know, and not to overanalyze yourself, not to be too critical of yourself. You know, while I like to see myself under a harsh light, you know, you don't beat yourself up about anything either because, you know, chances are you've done most of what you could do to be who you are today. You know, you've, you've taken the opportunities that were available to you you know you may not have made all the best decisions and you know i'm not even talking to myself right here i'm just talking to anybody who's listening to this who experiences any kind of episode like this and par- and tries to deal with it by beating themselves up you know i don't think that that's helpful um I think you just have to say "Yeah, I took the opportunities I did to get myself here I made the decisions I did to get myself here. I need to make smarter decisions probably in the future because we always have the opportunity to make smarter decisions. But if you're feeling this you have to remember it's a transformation. And you wouldn't be transforming if you weren't who you were, then who you are now. And if there wasn't something else for you to become. Whether you frame it as a nervous breakdown, a dark night of the soul, a spiritual reckoning, spiritual ecstasy. Whatever it is, however you want to frame these universal feelings that probably go back to the caveman. I mean a caveman would have called it eh. Caveman would have been feeling exactly what I'm feeling, and they just would have said eh, eh, eh. You know? Does that make them any more wrong? Does that make their description? less correct than mine because they said it in a single syllable, basically. That might have been two or three syllables. I don't know. I do not know. But I know that I, I, this, this experience has been documented. People have shared it in their own ways, in their own times. People are going through it right now in different ways. But it's still kind of the same thing. As far as I know, it's, kind of the same thing. So it doesn't matter what phrases doesn't matter what you even do about it. But I think if you understand that who you were, led to who you are, and who you are now is going to lead to who you are next. That's a helpful way of looking at it, because you understand that there is an evolution, you understand there's a transformation. And you should never take that for granted, you should never take a transformation for granted. So yeah, you know, I'll probably have more to say about this. Probably, I shouldn't try to say that I won't. I shouldn't try to say that I won't. Uh, but that's all I have for now.